Your time is now. The world needs leaders. It's up to you to answer the call. Be better in business. Be better in life. Joined by our host, Chris Book. This is Leading by the Book. Hey guys, welcome to Leading by the Book. I'm Chris Book. Hope your week's off to a good start here. Thanks for stopping by and spending a little bit of time with us. If you want to get in touch with the show, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on leadingbythebook.com, or you can get in touch with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Chris Book. If you like the show, would love it if you would leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. This week, we have a tremendous treat and uh, I guess a, big, a bit of a first for Leading by the Book. We have our first interview in the history of the show, and hopefully we have many more, but I cannot imagine a better first interview than the man we have for you today. We have Andy Stumpfon with us, and Andy's a former Navy SEAL. He has plenty of other things on his resume as well that we'll cover in pretty great detail here, but the next hour or so is packed with great leadership information from Andy, and he shares all kinds of these lessons with businesses throughout the world. So I hope you like it. I would love to hear what you think after the show. Like I said, send me a message on leadingbythebook.com or get in touch with me on Twitter or LinkedIn. So without further ado, Andy Stump. Our guest today, the first guest in the history of Leading by the Book, is the host of the Cleared Hot podcast, and he operates a leadership consulting business. He served for 17 years in the United States Navy as a SEAL, where he was a member of several SEAL teams, including SEAL Team 6, before medically retiring in 2013. He's decorated with five bronze stars, four with valor, and a purple heart, among several others. And on top of that, he holds the world record for the longest distance traveled in a wingsuit and appears to be one hell of a bow hunter. You've likely heard him on Joe Rogan and Jocko Podcast or seen him on Hunted on CBS. That man is Andy Stump. Andy, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So as I think we're going to learn here, that intro probably barely scratches the surface. Um, and, and I think there's, there's certainly a lot that uh, our audience will be able to learn from you. Now, a few days back when I was talking to our mutual friend, Maureen O'Connell, about who would be a great first guest for the show... She just kind of randomly threw out and said, I know this guy, Andy Stump, you know, have you heard of him? He, he, he seems really, really sharp. And I first heard you a couple years back on Jocko's show, and your story always has stuck with me for, for a variety of reasons, some very personal and some just because of the lessons they have, but it's truly remarkable. So I'm thinking the best way for us to kind of unpack this is really just to go through this sequentially. That works for me. It's your show. Fire away. <laughs> Perfect. So you enlisted in the Navy as a junior in high school. So you'd have been, what, 17 years old? So, and this is a good point to start with. So I did actually enlist. And by that, I mean I had to bring basically a permission slip home from the Navy recruiter, and both of my parents had to sign it because I was 17, and you have to be 18 to actually start your military service, or at least that's the way it was when I went in. And for anybody who is young or is listening to this, don't be in a rush to go the route that I did because I still had to wait until I was 18. I could have easily turned 18 and signed my paperwork and been on my way. In reality, what I was doing was uh, filling a billet for the recruiter. So she had a great month and, uh, you know, stressed my parents out a little bit earlier than maybe I needed to. So you have time is the point that I'm getting to. How much latitude do the recruiters have in the promises that they make? That's a good question, and I don't have a good answer for you. Uh, for me, the route that I chose, I went to the recruiter and said, this is what I want to do. I did not go to a recruiter and say, what can you offer me or what are my options? And she was an aircraft mechanic who had used to work with the Blue Angels. So her understanding of the career field I wanted to go into was probably peripheral at best. And I think I probably knew more about it than she did. I will say, though, that... You know, the military is going to get their pound of flesh out of you, and that will start at the recruiting office. Trust but verify is a great principle to use. Uh, if they make a promise, you know, verify it to the best of your ability. The Internet being what it is, you can find the answers to almost anything. You can probably find the answers to your questions. So educate yourself as much as possible. As a 17-year-old, I imagine this, this kind of driven nature, at least it seems to be increasingly rare. So when you're 17, what's, what, what's the driver behind this? What's pushing you to do this and, and to be so laser-focused on this? You know, I wish I had a good answer to that. I've, I've actually thought about that phase of my life and tried to put into some semblance of words that would make sense where the drive and desire came from, and I really, I really don't know. 
Uh, certainly at that age, I didn't have the vocabulary or experience to be able to describe it, but it was it was a magnetizing force for me. As, as soon as I had heard about SEALs, which originally I heard about it from my father, who was not a SEAL, but worked with SEALs in Vietnam, I, I think it was probably the combination of the exclusivity of it, uh, the challenge, the fact that the odds were stacked against me, uh, all of those things, and the fact, quite frankly, that just about everybody that you'll meet will probably tell you that you have no chance of successfully completing it. And for me, that's the easiest way to motivate me to do something. Now, I, I realized that later on in my life. I don't think those were the driving factors when I was young, but there was just something about it. I mean, and I didn't, I didn't even really know what it was. I, I had a, an idea in my head, a concept of what I was getting into, and that was largely the SEAL teams that I got into pre-9-11, and then that mold was shattered uh, post-9-11, and it became something that I never even really imagined or thought that it could be. How long passed from the time you got out of boot camp to the time you went into BUDS? So when I went through, and the system has changed, so I can only speak about uh, my pipeline. Before they would send you to BUDS, because of the attrition rate at BUDS, they wanted you to have an occupational career field. And in the Navy, that's called an NEC. I believe it stands for Naval Enlistment Classification. And it's essentially a, it's a job. So they send you to a trade school. So after boot camp, and to get a billet at BUDS during boot camp, it was one of the first few weeks, and you just literally raise your hand, and you volunteer to go, and you do a running test, a swimming test, push-ups, pull-ups, and sit-ups. And by test, I mean, you could lift your leg up and walk over the bar. It's so low, like, meaning metaphorically, it's not difficult test to pass. Sure. Once you get into the, so that we'll call that the very large end of the funnel. And if you work your way towards the narrow end, which is actually showing up a budge, you need to have a school or an occupation that the Navy can do something with you if you don't make it through, because most of the people don't make it through. So I looked at the list of available schools and picked mine based off the shortest one, which happened to be Operations Specialist A School, which is a radar scope operator. I still haven't seen one to this day. <laughs> uh, if you were to put one in front of me and your life depended on it, we're all going to die. That's all I'll say about that. And completed that course and then went to BUDS. So that school was eight weeks long. There was probably a week of transfer time and waiting for the class to start. And probably another week of transfer time and waiting for my BUDS class to start. So it's, it's a couple month process. And for people who are thinking about joining the military or, and I'm sure anybody in the military could tell you, it's not a quick moving machine. It's a bureaucracy that is very layered, and things are going to take time. Sure. You know, I think a lot of us from corporate America think we have an idea of what bureaucracy is, and we probably have no idea when it, it comes to the military, just in terms of what real bureaucracy actually looks like. But, you know, I, I think for our audience, we should probably at least mention what BUDS is. Um, and you can obviously describe this better than I, but it's it's the, I guess, the kind of the, the weeding out and the introductory course, the introductory step to becoming a SEAL. Yes, SPUD stands for Basic Underwater Demolition Slash Seal. It is a six-month-long pipeline. It is a selection course. You are not a SEAL at the end of BUDS. Uh, I would actually say the emphasis on BUDS needs to be at the B. It's very basic. It's physically and mentally demanding. And in the modern day, post-BUDS, you have probably another 18 to 24 months of training after completion of BUDS before you will be eligible to earn your trident, which is the actual pin that goes on your chest. And then in the military system, they change you to a 5326 if you are an enlisted guy, or uh, I think the officer is an 1130. But there's an actual award ceremony where you get the metal pin itself, and then they change your designator. With BUDS, as, I, as I've talked to guys that have been through it and been around it over the years, yeah, I've kind of seen this this kind of general feeling come to the surface, which is that there there are lots of strong guys, there are a lot of fast runners, there are a lot of great swimmers, you know, all of which are obviously very important in this line of work, but many of them will will drop. And, and it seems that the defining characteristic is not necessarily physical attributes or where you're from or what you know, but really the mental component of there. So the mindset that you bring to it every day. I mean, is that something that you can validate? I would say it's very accurate. Um... It, it, it is very physically demanding. Uh, you know, people will say that BUDS is all mental, and yes, but it's also extremely physically hard. Now, having said that, much like getting a billet at BUDS, there are tests that you have to take along the way before you can actually class up and start training. And what I will say is, having gone through as a student and then going back as an instructor, is that 
If you can pass those baseline tests from a physiological level, you have the ability to graduate from training. And I bring that up because, you know, my class is an example. We started with 180 people. And if you would have lined us up shoulder to shoulder, there would be a little bit of height weight discrepancy. But I would say most of the people were plus or minus 3% in physical ability. There were some outliers, of course, were uh, collegiate athletes and probably people who were close to Olympic level when it came to swimming or running. And so they're always going to be the outliers, but almost everybody has exactly the same physiological capacity. And we started with 180 people on day one, and all of those people were able to, to meet the standards from a physical perspective. And when we graduated, 18 of those people remained. And the, the best highlighting of where the failure comes from is to ask people when you lay out the scenario, what muscle failed? And the answer is the one between your ears. So you, you get out of bud, you go through SEAL qualification training. Mm -hmm. when, when does the Team 6 process come into play? And, I, and I'm kind of fascinated by that because, you know, you get, you get out of this 90% attrition, you know, BUDS paradigm, and then you've got another high attrition environment, which is the selection for Team 6, I presume. Yeah, I think about 40% of the guys are unsuccessful on at least their first attempt to go there. Uh, for me, it came about five years later. Uh, you know, you, you have to... Before you go to that command, which everybody there at a, from an operator perspective is a SEAL, uh, but not all, not all SEAL missions are created equal. Uh, when, so you're talking about the jump between a SOCOM command, Special Operations Command, or a JSOC command, Joint Special Operations. The SOCOM commands, I would say, they're much more a jack-of-all-trades. They, they train to a variety of different standards and capabilities. When you go to the JSOC level, you're still expected to be able to train and be at least current in a lot of those things, but you're much more targeted towards, in my opinion, uh, assaulting compounds or changing or uh, chasing down high-value targets. Now, to really be able to successfully do that, you need some experience under your belt. So there's a minimum amount of time you need to actually get spent at a, a conventional SEAL team before you screen for that. And again, things might have changed, so I can only talk about my perspective, which is now you know, almost a decade and a half old, but it's another six-month course. The difference being they were testing your capabilities and your tactical and technical proficiency of being a SEAL. They weren't trying to make you quit. Different selection. When it comes to Team 6, is that voluntary in terms of, of putting your name in the hat and saying, I, I want to go do this? For sure. They would definitely – nobody wants to work with somebody who is voluntold. Sure. So th this idea of ambition, I think, is you know, it seems that on the surface, at least ambition is very good. But I think this is something that a lot of people, at least in a corporate environment, the majority of people that, that listen to our show, um, at, at least have some semblance of, of corporate experience under their belt. But ambition can be very tough to manage in a business setting. You know, there, there's this idea that, you know, you don't want to be too ambitious because you might offend other people and, and you don't want to come off as, as hyper aggressive. Then the flip side of that is, you know, you kind of sit there as a little bit of a sheep, and if you're not ambitious, you're not driven, you're not going to get where you want to go. So, you know, how do you effectively harness that ambition in a way that's healthy, but also doesn't potentially alienate you in a team environment? Uh, you know, the SEAL teams are, there's a lot of misconceptions about the military. The first one would be the drill instructor where people think that the military is an organization that has discipline jammed down your throat. And that is the case when you go into boot camp because you you're need to break an individual from a sense of me and start building a sense of we. But that externally imposed discipline where people are, you know, drill instructors are over your shoulder telling you what to do, telling you how to do it, telling you how much time you have to do it, that doesn't exist post boot camp, at least in my experience, and especially inside of the SEAL teams. Inside of the SEAL teams, we're not looking for people that need to be told what to do. And if you actually continually ask your boss or the people that you're working with, you know, hey, what do I need to do? You're going to get sat down and you're going to get talked to because what you need to do is look around and figure out what needs to be done and then go to your boss with the solution. And that's the, the culture that we facilitate inside of the SEAL teams. So it's a very internally driven, internal discipline. And in addition to that, it's not about, I, I, I never worried about harnessing people's ambition. What I worried about was people putting themselves in front of the team. It has to be focused in all of our training leading up 
while you're in buds and even even then at a SEAL team, it's based around team performance. It's not about an individual's performance unless it impacts the team in a negative manner. So all of our training and all of our leadership is, is based in empowerment, but execution and completion of that team goal. And, you know, in the community that I came from, you were either internally driven or you weren't there. It's And the military has some advantages because of that, because people are constantly and consistently having to volunteer, like, okay, I want to go to this command. I want to go to another level of another level of training. I think I know what you're talking about in the corporate world, because you're going to get both sides of the spectrum. Some people go there because maybe they have, they're driven, that they feel purposeful with their job. And maybe other people are there because it's the only job that they could get. That's where it's on the leadership to step in and set the vision for the organization. And I don't care what your organization is. I don't care if it's Fortune 50 or you're laying bricks. If you have people working for you, as a leader, you need to you need to harness whatever ambition that they have or lack of ambition, and you need to work with both and meet in the middle and get people to understand that the goal is actually team success, and the individual accolades can follow after that. Well, and so much of it, and, and I don't know how much latitude you, you necessarily have in a military environment, but at least in a corporate environment, so much comes back to hiring well. And, and that, can, that can be pretty harsh, um, but at the same time, you know, the, the people that you bring into your team, into your inner circle, are going to make or break you know, how successful you are as a company and organization. So populating yourselves with those people is key, but it seems that a core attribute, regardless of where you're at, is this idea of humility when you talk about people putting themselves ahead of the team or vice versa. So ha- having somebody that is ambitious but humble at the same time seems to sort of be a, a little bit of a winning combination. So I spent about half of my year speaking about leadership and teamwork and discipline and, you know, all of the, I guess, the core competencies or leadership skill sets that people associate with SEAL teams. And I actually go in and I, and I break down what we're looking for in our leadership and the teams. And that's on the enlisted and the officer side of the house. And the number one quality that I would say, at least in my opinion, that we're looking for is humility. You know, the Nobody will be ever egoless. If you tell somebody that you have no ego, you fall into the category of being a liar, and that's okay because you've exposed yourself. The reality is, is you just need to manage it. But, you know, ego is the antithesis of humility, but a good leader, an effective leader, it has to start with that humility. Yeah, I think this is a way we've screwed a lot of kids up. Um, as they're becoming young professionals or getting out of college, they read the, the press, they read the business magazines, and... They, they see what's idolized, and this comes a lot from the tech space, but from other industries as well. They see what they think leaders are supposed to be like, and th- that paradigm kind of shows humility as weakness ra- rather than strength. And I think, at least in the business world, we have a lot to do to be able to reverse that because it, it's done a good deal of damage to kids progressing throughout their careers and, and trying to take on leadership positions in their company. And they're, they're doing what they think they're supposed to be doing, not, not what they really kind of in their heart believe. And it set a lot of companies back because of that. You know, a lot of what I see in the business world makes sense to me. And a lot of what I see in the business world does not make sense to me. And one of the biggest disconnects, and maybe this comes from working in an environment for almost two decades where it didn't really matter how good you were at your job. Your paycheck was going to be based on how long you were in the military yeah. and what rank you were at. And I could literally go on the internet and tell you what every single person at every pay grade is making. So it removed the desire to separate yourself from a financial perspective, which is what I see people chasing in the business world to the detriment of everything else. And just to kind of highlight your point, I don't know where the disconnect came. You know, if, if you have the BMW 7 Series or whatever, whatever it may be, maybe you have the corner office, maybe you have the parking space, maybe you have the acronym on your business card. People associate those things with leadership and success. And to me, they have absolutely nothing to do with it. Sure. Yeah, I, I think it's it's tragic what we're seeing, and I know like people like to bag on millennials a lot, but part of it is just what they're what they're being taught. They're 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 deficient in terms of the examples that they have, and in terms of the information that they've been given with, with which to lead. And it's it's killing people. There's also this misconception that you have to be a senior person in a company to be able to lead. That that idea of leadership theoretically should start. The minute you set foot somewhere, you, you don't have to be in charge to be a leader necessarily. Well, there's two ways to lead. One of them is 
you know, and military is a good example. There are positions that uh, bestow leadership because of the organization that you're in. But there are more people than there are seats at the C-suite. You know, you may never be a CEO or a CMO or a CIO or fill in the blank. You may never get the leadership position that you feel that you deserve. And a lot of people, at least in my experience, so they turn a blind eye to thinking that they're a leader, which is a mistake. And to highlight your point, the other way you can lead is to lead by example and to conduct yourself every single day in the manner commensurate with how you would want to act when you actually achieve that leadership position. It's the same theory as learning how to drive. If you go to the DMV on your 16th birthday and you've never driven a car, and you don't understand how it operates, you're going to go stand at the window, get into a vehicle, and you're going to fail your test. And everybody would tell you that that's an unreasonable approach to getting your driver's license because you have no idea how to drive. And people will all agree on that when it comes to uh, you know, a professional license for driving a car. Why don't we view leadership in exactly the same way? You have to build the experience. You have to build the time in the saddle, most of which... And well, I wouldn't say most of which. I have found the most effective way to build that is to find a mentor, which is exactly actually how you learn how to drive. Somebody sits next to you, you pull and draft off of their experience. If you reach the boundaries of yours, they're there to kind of shepherd you back, to keep you out of danger. Eventually, you have enough. You go and you take your tests, and you get a professional license. If you conduct yourself and think of yourself, even on your first day in the job, I'm going to think of myself as a leader, and I'm going to act like the leader that I want to be when I have that corner office. You will be so much more prepared when you actually arrive there. It, you won't be the person who's never driven trying to take their test. And then what I'll say about the millennials is I hear that often. And people have to embrace and understand that leadership is not a bottom-up problem. It's a top-down problem. Don't look to your people for the problem in leadership. Go find a bathroom and look in the mirror and turn the lights on. And that right there is where you're going to find the problem in your organization when it comes to leadership. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I was uh, before we ch uh, chatted, I was browsing around on your site and I noticed you had had some merchandise on there. And the phrase that you see a lot on there is is be the example. And I think that's it's a simple phrase, but it's it's such a powerful, powerful. It's powerful. It, it, it really is. It just through, through pure happenstance, um, a couple of days ago, I actually wrote an article that was going up on our site, and it may or may not post before this, this uh, post the site as well. Um, but the title of the article is Be the Leader You Admire. And, you know, it, it's funny to me because we have people at, at all ages that are so busy trying to, you know, I, I hit this leadership attribute and this attribute and this attribute. And it's really just as simple as sitting there and saying, all right, in this situation, what would the leader that I admire do? Just do that. Let, let, let's not try to be so many things that we're not and tick so many boxes. Let, let's just do the right thing and, and make sure, to, to use your phrase, that we're the example for everybody else. You know, leadership is uh, it's time-consuming. It, you're going to need to spend a lot of time reflecting on yourself for the benefit of your people. You know, not to make yourself this shiny jewel, but to ensure that you are leading your people in the way that they deserve to be led. And... You have to realize, if you're in a leadership position, that whether you want them to or not, every single person is listening and watching. And in addition to that, they're ready to mimic your behavior and your attributes. And, and this goes well outside of the business world. If you have kids, this is exactly the same principle. Sure. The most powerful way that you can raise the next generation of leaders is to be the example. And that's where that, uh, you're talking about a t-shirt from the site, and that's where that particular t-shirt and phrase comes from. Is there an impatience with, with folks, and, and, and again, I think this can be all ages, but is there an impatience to progress up to, to leadership roles and not necessarily the willingness to put in the time that they need to be able to do those roles effectively? Depends on how you view leadership. If you only view it by the corner, uh, corner office, then yeah, I think there's going to be a level of impatience. But if you view that every single day you have the opportunity to act as if you are that leader and to gather the experience that you realize and know that you're going to need to be effective in that role, I think it mitigates a lot of that. And in addition to that, I think we're really battling a instant gratification society. And the best way, I think, to to address that is is to do exactly that, address it head on and talk about it. I think. Expectation management is a tool that is underutilized in business. Uh, I speak a lot at law enforcement and fire, even in military, but 
uh, I spent last year talking to some, some massive financial firms and the expectations of the people coming into the firm are different than the realities of the day-to-day -day life that they're going to encounter. And I think that's an important gap that you can bridge. Set those expectations early. It will help keep people on that path. Sure. You know, I, th I think clarity is something that the business community struggles with, you know, especially in large, large companies. So the most recent company I was with was about 188,000 people. And it's, it's so vital that you have simplistic clarity about that organization and what it's trying to accomplish. But what's scary is that the vast majority of people don't understand which of those clarified goals or values their work is, is actually trying to achieve. And, and it, it's something that I think all leaders, for some reason, in the corporate world struggle with. Maybe it's because they become consumed with their jobs or, or their schedules become too full. But creating clarity throughout that entire chain of command is so, so vital. I agree. You know, the biggest difference I've seen in, in the companies that I've interfaced with the disconnect isn't necessarily in concept. They understand the concepts of leadership. They understand that they need clarity. The difference between their world and the world that I came from is really just time. Bad leadership on a, on a battlefield will manifest itself incredibly fast. And, I mean, we're talking seconds, if not minutes. And, and you go to the business world where at some level, people often will reduce their job to ones and zeros and profit and loss, it, it kind of allows you to get like this 1% creep every day away from those core competencies and that clarity that you're talking about. And it doesn't really get noticed because the timeline for it to really rear, it head, rear its head, you know, maybe it's a year, maybe it's six months. But the same concepts that are effective in combat and business, it's just that time that I think allows people to slide. Yeah, it's that feedback loop. Yeah. So switching gears just a little bit here, one of the things that I've noticed over the years of the companies that I've been at is the, and I'm going to try to choose my words carefully here, and it might not come out right, but the, the advantage of a crisis. And, and what I mean by that is when there's a crisis, when a competitor introduces a new product or there, there's an issue with your website or whatever it is, that crisis seems to strengthen resolve. And I, and I understand that is is a much more tame, um, <laughs> I guess, low-impact environment than what you would have seen in the military pre-9-11 and post-9-11. But I'm really curious how that crisis, so to speak, or, or just the change or the impact of 9-11 manifested itself in, in your role and in the teams you were on in terms of the way you operated and potentially even the urgency with which you operated. You know, I remember watching the second aircraft. I was living in San Diego at the time, and I think we just, my wife and I had not been, we got married that year, February of that year, 2001. And I think we just happened to wake up in time to see the second aircraft going live. I think I had been watching the news for less than a minute when it actually went in. And my initial thought was, here we go. I'm going to go into work today and we're going to be on an airplane and it's, you know, we're going to be getting after it. And then in October of 2002, nearly a year later, I actually got on that airplane. So there was a sense of urgency, but we were not strategically prepared to go and invade the countries that we did. So we had to take time and we had to ramp up. But what I will say the difference was, is that overnight we went from a theoretical or hypothetical environment to a very hands-on practical environment. And it just stripped away all of the BS. And I think that's probably the, the crisis and the resolve that you'll see inside of organizations in time of crisis, the things that are the petty arguments, they're the things that you would waste the 90% of your time on that have 1% impact, those are stripped away and you focus and you go back to your basics and your core competency. To be honest, it, I'm, and I'm sure you remember this too, I wish we could go back to how our country was in the few weeks post 9-11 with the tolerance and the compassion, and the strength and resolve that you spoke of because it's gone now and it didn't last that long. And I don't want something like that to happen again, but I certainly felt a palpable difference in who, who we were as a country and how we interacted as a society. And I think you feel and see the same things in organization, whether it's business or military. Yeah. I mean, it's been, what, 17 years? And it's, it, it's kind of shocking to think that in, in that 17 years, you know, just how that, – that's rapid in the grand scheme of things, but how rapidly we've deteriorated from, from that resolve and that – I don't know, maybe we'll call it team-oriented, but that kind of connectedness we had with our neighbors and, and everything else then. But, you, you know, it's, it's 
baffling to me um, just how quickly we, 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 we can undo that. I'm just, I'm kind of shocked by that. And I've, I've heard you talk about kind of that point previously, but we're so quick to lose that. And I think from a business perspective, you know, we're so quick to lose kind of the, the team-oriented nature they work with, with within businesses. You know, we, we're not that close with our teams. We don't feel committed to the missions we're in. And it, it gets back to leadership. You have to you know, exude so much ownership over the way your team operates and the parameters of the missions that they're on and, and even really own the way they work with each other on that. And it doesn't take much to erode that, just as we saw, you know, from a country perspective, how quickly that eroded here as well. So it's it's scary, but I think for the leaders in business, the lesson is you have to be hyper vigilant to this because even though you might have it today, it's going to be gone tomorrow if you don't take care of it. You have to keep your finger on the pulse. That's what I would say. So you you deploy in two thousand two, and mm-hmm. then how far into that was it on that deployment when when you were wounded? No, that was. Six deployments later, five or six deployments later. And so you talk about that a little bit and then the, the ensuing, um, I guess, recovery from that. Because that was really something that, that stuck out to, to me hearing your story for the first time. Just the resolve and, and this idea of dealing with setback. It's on a level that I think most of us will never experience, but there's such, a, such an incredible amount we can learn from that. Well, I, I do hope that nobody has to experience it, at least in the manner with which I did. But, you know, I was, I was at a command that was operating at a very high level. Uh, It was everything that I thought being a SEAL could be, and then multiply that by 10. Like I said, pre 9-11 was kind of the SEAL teams I thought I was getting into. Post 9-11, it morphed into something that I don't even think people realized it could get to. So I was young, mid-20s operating with great friends, uh, and I felt like we were really making a difference, and night after night and after night, we would go out, and we would have, you know, most of the time I was wearing a quarterback sleeve on my arm that had a picture associated with who we were going after. I had a very micro metric for success. We either got the individual or we didn't, and it oftentimes felt like we were really making a difference, and one night, I, you know, went over a courtyard wall, and I don't know if I made too much noise. I don't know if I turned my head at the wrong time. Whatever it may be, uh, ended up taking an AK-47 round in the hip, and it literally, figuratively, metaphorically, just laid me flat on my back. And it was the only analogy I can really think of is you know you're in an Indy car doing 200 miles an hour around turn number four, and then you just decide to put the car in reverse. The trail of transmission that's going to come out behind that thing is about how my life felt uh, after that happened, and. Got medevaced home, and it was basically an all-stop. You know, the military kept driving forward in the military's direction, and the amount of injuries that had been seen, I think, at that point, or at least that had been medevaced back to the United States, was not what it is in the modern day. And uh, My wife would probably choose some more colorful words than I will, but let's just say that the medical treatment that I got, I would consider to be substandard. And it ended up with, you know, the very stereotypical guy who's got 15 pill bottles and no oversight. So you start playing, we'll do two greens and a red and a shot of Jack Daniels and you end up going down the rabbit hole and I was basically, I was lost. Uh, I had lost my identity of who I was because the person that I was right before I had gotten shot was the person that I wanted to be. And here I am sitting on the couch, unable to sleep at night and drinking too much and playing pill roulette during the daytime to kind of manage the pain. At least that's what I was telling myself. And I eventually got to the point, uh, it, it was because of some of the medications that I was taking, it, they started having a cognitive effect. And I remember driving with my wife and she was asking me a very basic question that had something to do with uh, the, the cost or what we would need to spend to fill up the tank of gas. And I think gas in Virginia Beach at that time was like $1.15 a gallon. And my point in saying that is, is that the, the math problem wasn't very complicated and I couldn't do it. I remember sitting there and just feeling outside of myself like I could not do very basic arithmetic and in that moment I was just like you know what I'm not this is not who I'm going to be I'm going to build myself back I'm going to take control of this situation instead of allowing it to control me slowly wean myself off of all of those meds uh, and some of them I were taking were very powerful anti-seizure medicines that had secondary and tertiary effects for neuropathic pain which also lower threshold and tolerance for seizures 
And if you just stop those cold turkey, even if you're not susceptible to seizures, you can start having them. So it was a process and started working out, started exhausting myself both physically and mentally and was able to sleep. And, you know, it took me about a year, but I came back stronger than I was before I had gotten hurt. And uh, just recently, somebody had asked me, I think I might have talked about it on my own podcast, but what was the biggest blessing in disguise? And I actually think that night getting laid flat out on my back and having to come to the realization and the grips that I may not be able to do the things that I want to do in this career field anymore ever again. It forced me to lift my head up and look around. And it forced me to at least spend some of my time every day after that thinking about what was going to happen next. Because not only did my mortality get thrown in my face, but the very boundary time that anybody can spend in the military also got thrown in my face. Because if I couldn't have done my job, they would have medically retired me, which I ended up getting medically retired, but it would have happened uh, eight years earlier. And then I would have been sitting there asking myself, well, what's next? What do I do now? So it was by far the biggest blessing in disguise. It was the deepest hole that I think that I've ever been in. And I didn't look to anybody else to get me out of it. I just did it on my own. The reason that 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 stuck with me um, is because years ago, I think, uh, geez, probably 2008, um, I actually um, had a traumatic brain injury myself. I was was racing Ironman at the time. I was on a training ride, and I got, got hit by a car. And the years that followed that were were excruciating. And, and to kind of your, your example about gas, um, we lived in, in San Diego at the time. We might have moved there short, shortly after. Um, and we lived five blocks from my office. And there were nights that I would walk around for two or three hours because um, I couldn't remember where we lived. Or I'd ride the elevator in our building up and down because I couldn't remember the floor we lived on. And... It it gets it gets dark because you know you're you're doing this thing you love you're, you're racing bikes and, and you're going all it's over the devastating. world. It's devastating. I know exactly what you're talking about. You just start questioning like because you know what you know you can feel the delta between yeah. who you used to be and who you are, and it it's hard to describe to people who haven't been to that spot. But living in that valley between those two, not sure which direction you're going to swing towards for the rest of your life, is a very unsettling place to be. Yeah, but it's at some point you just have to you have to decide what am I going to be and and maybe you know a lot of people don't want to accept their their fate sometimes but there are things I'm never going to be able to do again and that's fine but I can sit here and dwell on it or I can figure out what I can do and I can get damn good at doing that. The the uh, thing that that I kind agree. of sticks out. So going through that, how hard was that? on your wife because i think for for the spouses in this situation <laughs> yeah she might again have some colorful language for you it was it, it's tough it was miserable and i'll tell you why it was because i was miserable i was acting like a baby um you know i was a, a child throwing a tantrum because i was super self-centered consumed with oh look at me i'm not going to be able to do what i want to do um and i regret the way that i was and i've apologized uh to her many times for that and it's something that I need to make up for for the rest of my life because at the end of the day, she was the one who was supporting me through all of those years and all those deployments before that and the deployment that happened afterwards. You know, the easiest job in the world, in the military world at least, is the active duty service member. I am of the belief and opinion that the family and specifically the spouses hold a much more difficult job than the service member in and of themselves, and I was not making it any easier on my wife. Oh, it's It's absolutely true. And, you know, there's, there's a depression that, that kind of takes you over when you're in the situation. I remember at one point, I think we, we got our cell phone bill and I used nine cell phone minutes one month. And you know, it's kind of like, all right, this, this, this is a problem. But, you know, so, so much of this falls on, on the spouses because they're driving you to your appointments. They're, they're handling the doctors because, you know, at least in my case, I, I was damn near a vegetable. And, yeah. you know, when, when it comes to the military and, and just the pressure that's put on the spouses in that regard, it is, it's one of those things that until you've experienced it, it's unfathomable. It's, it's very hard to describe. There is a difference in the dynamic between military families and non-military families. I put no value judgment on it whatsoever, but there is certainly a difference. Yeah, and if I learned anything from this, it's that uh, I probably owe my wife an apology because I never crossed that bridge. You know, as a guy, it's good to apologize, I think, just every other day in a blanket nature. Like, hey, honey, I'm sorry. 
And if they ask you for what, then just think back for the last 10 minutes on something you did wrong. It, it'll help you out, guys. Yeah, just have a little card with a couple lines in the back to yeah. fill in. Just randomly throw that out there. You never know. But half the time, my wife's upset with me. I don't even know what I did. Yeah, just look at it as a down payment, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> so com- coming, coming out of the injury and in your recovery process, you eventually go back to Bud's as an instructor. Yes, that is kind of the, I would say that was the uh, billet that I used to fully rehabilitate myself. So it had been what? What are we talking here? Maybe 10 years at the time since you went through Bud's yourself? Uh, let's see. I went back. Uh, yeah, it was actually exactly 10 years. So how had, and it's a little bit of a complex question, but how had the, the mindset in that generation sort of changed? And from your perspective, how do you handle the cross-generational leadership? Because you've got deployments under your belt. You're, you're so much more mature mentally than the folks you're effectively leading through, through buds and, and elsewhere. You know, how do you handle the cross-generational leadership? And what of that can we take to the business world where we're talking maybe 40, 50 years of age range in terms of people that we have to lead? Well, you know, there's only two types of leadership. There's good and effective leadership. And there's bad and ineffective leadership. I don't believe in cross-generational leadership. I don't agree or believe in business leadership or combat leadership. There's leadership. And the view that I took when I went there as an instructor, because there are many characters there, uh, some of them really like that positional authority over others. And I'm not going to say they manipulate that authority, but they play to it. They like to be the person that yells and screams and, and punishes or the word we had to use was remediate for legal reasons uh, that we need not get into on this particular episode. But uh, the approach I took was different. I, in my 18 months there, I don't think I raised my voice a single time. And I viewed the students as people that I was going to work with in the future. And I treated them with a baseline level of respect. But with that respect, I demanded the exact same thing from me. So if I told them to do something, I would tell them why, and if they did not execute the way that they were supposed to, there was a very heavy punishment for it. Uh, I was extremely fair, um, but the punishments were extremely hard because that is what the job demands. And I'm glad that I took that approach uh, because I ended up working with over 30 of the people that I, the last combat deployment I did, I think of the 44 people that went overseas, 30 of them were people that I had put through training. And I viewed them as potential co-workers and treated them as such. I didn't talk down to them. Uh, I recognized their lack of experience and I tried to bridge it by being as open and honest as possible. Once a week I would go into a classroom and I would sit there with them and I literally would just answer questions about the career field, regardless of what they may be. And a lot of those questions they wanted to know about combat. So we would talk about combat or just life in the SEAL teams or they would ask relationship-based questions. And I just I took it upon myself. I I actually look at it as probably the most rewarding billet that I ever held because I was able to shape the next generation of leaders inside of the SEAL teams. How did I do that? I did it by being the example of the leader that I wanted them to be. You you know, it's funny. A couple weeks ago uh, on the show, we talked about this idea of of time with leadership and the fact that leaders make time. in, in the corporate world, there's this, this really messed up paradigm. But the more senior somebody gets in a company, the more their, their schedule fills up. And, and I remember times where I would need to talk to, to another senior person in the company. And you know, I, I'd talk to their, to their admin, and they'd say, yeah, uh, next month uh, there's 15 minutes on Thursday. And I'm thinking, this is, is unbelievable. But when these schedules are so full, the people that really pay the price are the people that are under your command on your team, the people that you're responsible for developing and just spending time with these people. And, and a part of it is getting to know them personally, but a part of it is just making yourself available for whatever it is they feel they need to get better at their job. And I don't think in the, in the corporate world, we spend nearly enough time just developing people because we become so consumed on my meeting schedule and what's my pr- next promotion and all this. And if you really want to be a good leader, if you really want that next promotion, the best thing to do is to develop your team. It's, it's an infallible way to do this, but it's so, so neglected. I agree. And let me ask you this, you know, that same organization where you go, that leader wasn't available for a month. 
if there were to be a crisis that were to ensue, how quickly do you think you would be able to talk to that leader? I imagine it would be pretty quick because yeah. we, we probably all would have, would have been in a room. But everybody would have realized. Correct. They would have come together. Everybody would have come together. They would have realized that it actually is a priority for you guys to meet. And so what it is, what I have found in business when that happens is people are just spending too much time on their heels. They're lost in the ancillary information instead of the primary information because they have time. And when that crisis comes, all the BS is stripped away. And the next thing you know, your key leadership is meeting how they should be on a regular basis. And I tell you right now, fight your way out of a crisis sucks. Thinking through a crisis and talking with your leadership and developing your people to handle crises before crises, I'm not sure the correct terminology, before they actually rear their head, that's the effective approach. You don't want to always be on the receiving end of an ambush. Is that ego, though, to an extent? So when, when your schedule is totally full, is that, is that ego saying, you know, my, my schedule's full, I'm, I'm very important, look at me, I'm doing my job? It could be, or it could just be the uh, laissez-faire attitude of the organization because maybe they're on a 10-year run. You know, maybe, maybe the status quo, maybe the leadership feels that the status quo is just good enough. And honestly, you know, one of the things that doesn't upset me, that concerns me about the generation of kids, I have a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 9-year-old, and I see uh, the millennial generation, and I actually think my kids are one generation past that generation, fill in the blank, whatever they may be. I don't think they have uh, enough challenge. I, I, I see so many attempts to round all of the corners and bubble wrap the world and insulate from challenges, whether they be mental challenges or physical challenges. And when you do that in the business world, you start getting soft and you start worrying about how full your calendar is instead of the core concepts and priorities of your business. Do you think even as adults, we challenge ourselves enough? Because there's there, there is such a, a satisfaction and such a momentum gained when you struggle with something and, and overcome it. And I guess, you know, I, I've got kids that are really young now, but I'll watch my two-year-old for 10 minutes try to crawl on the couch and fall down and try to crawl on the couch and fall down. And part of me feels like I'm a little sadistic just sitting here and watching this, but I know that what he's going to feel when he gets on the couch is going to be so much greater than if I pick him up and plop him down there. Yeah, it's the same thing as, you know, Teaching your child to tie their shoes or you tying them for your child until they're six, the difference in what that child expects. You know, to answer your question, I think at a broad level, I mean, I obviously can't speak for everybody. I think our society is incredibly soft. And I think we are an instant gratification society. And the pursuit seems to be uh, to solve problems with an app in as least amount of time as possible with as least amount of effort. And I think that is completely wrong. So, no, I don't think as adults we challenge ourselves at all. So on this topic of challenge, you do two years as an instructor at BUDS, and mm -hmm. then you submit your packet to go through OCS, correct? Uh, I actually didn't go through OCS because I don't have a college degree. I went through a program called uh, LDO, which is Limited Duty Officer. So and in, in with that, you become fully commissioned officer, correct? Correct. So as you, as you make that jump to being a a fully commissioned officer, you know, there's, there's a lot of newness with that, I would presume. And I, I think a lot of people, you know, to, to a much different degree experience this in, in their jobs, when you get to this new level and you're looking around and you think, all right, you know, all these people around here seem like they got it together. They, they know what's going on. And there's, yeah, there's a learning curve, but it can also be a, a bit of a blow to confidence. And some people can turtle up, you know, how do you combat that when you're making this jump from, from a military perspective? You know, I took it one day at a time. I spent a lot of time introspectively thinking back about my career and the examples of people that I was around. And what I will say is that in the SEAL teams, I was exposed to the best principles and execution of leadership that I've ever seen. And I also was exposed to the worst principles and execution of leadership that I've ever seen. There was both. But those are both good examples of maybe one what you want to be and one that you don't want to be. And I didn't have a change in mentality because I had a change in uniform, you know, as a SEAL in that community, the leadership created the training pipeline, the sustainment pipeline, the training at the teams, the ethos, the core competencies. It's all based around viewing yourself as an individual, as a leader, regardless of what's on your uniform. So for me, honestly, it wasn't that big of a deal. There was no change in mentality. I didn't develop a chip on my block or a chip on my blog. I didn't develop a chip on my shoulder. 
if anything, uh, you know, I felt more indebted to the people that I was around. And that's what was the burden for me is that I was so concerned about the consequences of the decisions that I would make than what they would have on other people. But that's where I really focused, I focused my effort. It wasn't on me. It was on my people. Yeah, that, 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 there's a responsibility that comes with something like that. And, and it can it, it can be a lot to handle. But when you use it effectively, it is it, it, it's rewarding. You know, at least just from from my perspective, being able to help somebody through their career, help them learn, develop themselves, like that responsibility for their well-being within that corporate environment, it's it's awesome. It's, I, could, it's, I couldn't agree more. That's why, you know, I, I look back at my career and I really think that the Buds Instructor Tour was probably the most rewarding one. Do you think that as a leader and as an officer, um, having your enlisted background played well into that or made you a more effective leader as an officer because of that? Well, it definitely helps knowing how the sausage is made. And in the military and understanding the bureaucracy and having navigated it through for 12 years, yes, that 100% absolutely helped. Then having the tactical background as well also helped. But, you know, I was one situation away from putting my foot in my mouth and erasing all of that. So it can help and it can be beneficial, but it certainly is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. So then, as, as an officer, how many more deployments were you on before you decided to, to leave the Navy? I did one more deployment in 2010, uh, and it wasn't necessarily my choice to get out of the Navy. My body it just wasn't. The residual issue that I have is uh, neuropathic damage, or not neuropathic, but uh, nerve damage in my left leg. Specifically, I have a really hard time controlling rolling my ankle. And if you start adding body armor and weapon and rucksack, it, it gets it gets exponentially worse. And my body was just not going to tolerate the mandatory career wickets that I needed to do along the way to continue on the officer career path. So the decision was largely made, uh, it was largely made for me by the military. I mean, you're talking what 70 pounds of, of equipment all in here, putting all that pressure on your ankle. Usually body weight plus 80 to maybe 110 pounds. Okay. So so it's it's certainly significant. Yes. And, And, you know, and then, so it's same, you know, put 110 pounds uh, of plates on one side of a barbell and get the momentum going in one direction. It's, it's really hard to stop it, especially if that hinge point of your ankle is, doesn't have the ability to stop a roll. So coming out of the Navy, you know, this is something we talked a little bit about before we started recording, but this idea of a letdown and anytime somebody is either in, in a very immersive environment or kind of, kind of a, uh, a high performance environment. When you go on to whatever the next phase is, there's there's a letdown, and we see this with athletes all the time. You know, if you look at an athlete two years after he retired, half the time they're unrecognizable because they, they've either eaten themselves sick or whatever it may be. How do you take coming out of the Navy and instead of kind of letting it it stick you into a state of depression or you know, a little bit of a funk? How do you take that and just use that as momentum forward? Well, I think, you know, on the athlete front, it really, it really depends. Some, some of them do well, some of them struggle. Uh, and I've seen the same thing with people in the military as well. In f- for myself, like I said, the blessing disguise that I had was that I was already kind of looking at what was going to be next. And I was thinking about what it is that I wanted to do next. And when the day came for me to leave the military... It wasn't, it wasn't a hard thing for me. And it also wasn't a hard thing for me to detach from that sense of identity because I, it's a job. You know, you can't confuse occupation with character or occupation with who somebody actually is. But that's a mistake that's commonly made. And like you said, the athletes eating themselves to death or whatever it may be, they're so tied to one particular success or one particular achievement in their life even sports or military, let's say you do 20 years in the military, which is what you need to do to reach retirement age. If you join when you're 18, you do 20 years, that puts you at 38 years old. I mean, Google the life expectancy of a human or adult male in the U.S. right now. You got you got some time left on your hands, and yeah. you're going to have to redefine who you are. And for me, I constantly and actively try to not define myself by what my job was. And I pursued other things that I thought were interesting. And I took the lessons learned from the military and applied them to every other aspect of my life from family to being, I wouldn't consider myself to be an entrepreneur, but all of the 
other jobs that I've had along the way, I'm incredibly grateful for my military service. The lessons and the examples that were set for me, they, they boundary my behavior to this day, but I cannot wait to get to a point in my life where you tell people I was in the military and they're like, oh wow, that guy was? And that's, and that's what I think is missing for a lot of people. They spend their time looking in the rearview mirror as opposed to looking at all the opportunity that they have ahead and using those experiences to springboard them forward. We touched a little earlier on, on, on kids and, and struggles and letting our kids struggle a little bit, but for you with, with three kids, how do you take leadership lessons from the military and, and both apply to those, those to your, your kids and your relationships with your kids, but also you know, do it in a way where you're kind of separating military officer dad from dad dad? That's a tough one, too. Uh, you know, especially if you're used to people you know, snapping, too, when you're at work and you say something, you tell them to jump and they say how high. That uh, can get a different reaction if you tell your wife to jump and then she backhands you instead of saying <laughs> how high. So be cautious with that because the reality is your kids don't care and your spouse shouldn't either. But I will go back to the point that I made earlier. There's not family leadership and combat leadership. There is leadership. And the philosophy that I would say is promoted the most or used the most inside of the SEAL teams is mentorship. That to me is what I look at successful parenting. Bridging, I mean, all I have on my kids, I can tell you right now, they're all smarter than I am. The only advantage I have is I've been around the sun a few more times. So I try to fill in the holes of experience and knowledge that I've picked up along the way. And another important thing that I try to remind myself every single day is that I don't try to make them into who I was. I want to help them become the person that they want to be. Sure. And I think we see that so, so much with people living through their kids, and it seems to get worse every day. But I think so much of it as well is, is this idea you talked about earlier about being the example. You know, we, we can preach to our kids all day, but ultimately it's what they see in us in terms of how we behave, how we treat people, how we handle ourselves with discipline. That's, that's what's going to raise our kids well. Like I said, if you are a leader, which you are, and you should always think of yourself, especially in the family environment, and, and you mentioned it, it doesn't matter what you say because your kids are watching and listening and most importantly, prepared to mimic. So now you're, you're working in consulting. You're consulting with, with a variety of companies. What's the biggest misconception about leadership that you see in the corporate world? Uh, most often, I see people who associate leadership with position or title. It's, it's, and I, go, I use the driver's license, driver's license example often. It's, it, they don't want to think of themselves as a leader because they either don't have enough time in the organization or they don't have enough experience or they don't have the title or that office or the parking space. And they're just behind the power curve. It's leadership does not have anything to do with rank, title, or position. There can be leadership positions associated with that, but that is not where leadership comes from. And that is probably the biggest misconception that I see. So let's say you're a 22-year-old kid right now, and you're, you're just entering the workforce. You're you know, working in a cubicle. Maybe you're an accountant or whatever. What's your advice to him? I would say set massive macro goals for yourself personally and professionally. and Set those goals so high that you scare yourself as to whether or not you think you're going to be able to achieve them, and then get the hell out of the macro world. Write out for yourself a step-by-step -step guide on how you're going to achieve those goals, and once you have that, only focus on the next step in front of you. It's, you know, it, I'll use the analogy of losing weight. You know, I, I used to work for CrossFit, which is a strength and conditioning company. You'd often see people come in who were overweight. And to use a round number, let's say somebody wanted to lose 100 pounds. The difference between somebody being successful who approaches their goal from, I need to lose 100 pounds, and all I'm going to think about is how much farther I have to go, Versus the individual who comes in and says, I want to lose 100 pounds, but I want to do it an ounce at a time. And I'm going to celebrate every one of those ounces that I lose along the way. One of those, in my experience at least, is so much more successful, so, so much more often. Whereas the other one will get overwhelmed and they will quit. There's a lot of monotonous, mundane stuff that goes on in the SEAL teams as well. It's a bureaucracy. There's paperwork. There's admin. If you get lost and focus on those things... You're going to get lost and you're, you're going to struggle with the career field. But if you have a architecture and a goal of where you want to be, one day I want to be this rank, one day I want to have that job, you can focus on those steps along the way 
your likelihood of being successful is greatly enhanced. And then again, expectation management. You're young, you're at a cubicle, learn the ropes and then master the ropes and then turn right around and help somebody else master them. You know, there's this idea I think that a lot of people struggle with, which is, all right, I've made this great plan for myself. I'm going to lose 100 pounds an ounce at a time. Well, when I don't lose that ounce, we turtle up, we, we quit, whatever it is. And, you know, I think it's important for people to remember that it's not going to go according to plan. And, and your resolve and your fortitude is going to come into play at some point. But it's also okay that it doesn't go according to plan. But you have to have a plan at least to get you going and to provide some type of framework in this. It's not... It's not all or nothing. There's going to be a little bit of flexibility within this, but I think it scares people away because they feel that they're either too locked in or they don't want to face this idea of a short-term failure kind of in the eye. Well, you know, plans are great, but who really cares about the plan? It's about success. You know, military mission planning is a 72-hour process generally. I've planned hundreds of them. Zero have gone as planned, and I never was upset about it because I knew that it was going to. I'm obsessed with success, not obsessed with exceeding the plan as written or briefed. And like you said, it's the framework, it's the architecture. Who cares about a micro failure? Just don't let it impact the macro outcome. I think that's, that, that's huge advice. And that's probably the operative lesson from this. So, but before we go, just kind of a quick question for you. What is your typical day like now? Uh, I generally get up pretty early. I'm usually, I mean, I would say I get up like two minutes before Jocko just to make him feel bad. I mean, he's <laughs> sleeping in while I'm up doing something. So you're up at 4.32? Uh, uh, actually, 4.28. Cause he like, well, he's probably up at 4.28 too. So whatever time he gets up at, I'm up two minutes early for sure. Uh, but, I, you know, I have three young kids. Our house gets noisy in the morning. I actually enjoy getting up in the 4 o'clock hour at some point. Sometimes it's closer to 5. Sometimes it's closer to 4. I usually wake up before my alarm goes off. Uh, and I'll do a cup of coffee and I just, you know, chill out for probably five to 10 minutes, just chill. And I actually enjoy the process of making the coffee and I do a pour over. So I'm boiling it myself and it's kind of just a good, get the brain into first gear. Then I'll generally log on, knock out, knock out as much work as I can before my kids get up and then try to be there and present as I'm getting them ready for school. And then my favorite part of the day is taking my boys uh, to and from school. So I get to take them in the morning to the school they both go to and then, I come home and my daughter rides her bike to school, so I hop on a longboard skateboard and kind of just cruise along. I meet two little chatty Cathy's just talking about the day, and I repeat that at the end of the day. And in between those two pick up and drop off, I try to make myself sweat at least once a day. Uh, I find for my mental sanity, I need it. And given my uh, newfound passion of bow hunting, uh, to be good in the hunting environment, you better know how to shoot a bow. So I have some room in my backyard, and I'll do. Some really good thinking a lot of the times in therapy, shooting in a couple arrows and then walking 20 yards to get them and just kind of thinking through concepts and ideas. But I mean, that's about it. I, I enjoy my downtime uh, because I don't get that much of it. But, you know, I just focus, try to be present and available for my kids when they are home and crank the workout in between when they're not here. So how can people uh, support a lot of the organizations that you're involved with? Uh, you know, the, really the biggest organization that I'm involved with, I mean, I have sponsorship and endorsement deals on the skydiving and base jumping side of the house, and uh, those companies are doing fine on their own marketing. So uh, the one organization that is near and dear to my heart is the Navy SEAL Foundation, which is designed uh, to be there for the community in the event of a catastrophe, and they stay with the families uh, in the event of a death. And that's, I mean, it could be all the way through college, whatever it may be, and a lot of the times they're there on initial knock. And by that, I mean when, you know, the military stereotype people in their dress uniform knocking on the door, getting ready to notify a loved one that they've just had a catastrophic change in their life. And it really does help uh, from the service member perspective, knowing that there is an organization there to help with that. So for me, because of the DNA of the background that I come from, that's the organization that I try to support as much as possible. But Reality is there's, you know, there's Navy brats, Army brats, Air Force families, Marine Corps families. If people want to reach out and help, find one of those organizations, whatever it may be, and then donate your time or whatever money you may have to a very worthy cause. Then how can people get in touch with you, whether it's on Instagram, Twitter, wherever? Uh, my Instagram is just my name. It's Andy Stumpf 212 because I don't know who had Andy Stumpf, but I'm going to find it at some point and take it back. <laughs> uh, actually... In front of my computer, I don't even know what my Twitter address is. I think it's ASTOM77. Uh, I have a 
website, andystumpf.com, if people are curious who I am. Yeah, andystumpf77 on Twitter. But andystumpf.com uh, is the kind of like the catch-all. It has links to the podcast. It has links to my blog. It has uh, links to the speaking consulting stuff that I do. So, Or just a Google search. I mean, there's, I think, a contact button on just about every one of those pages. So if people want to get a hold of me, they can. Sure. And the podcast is cleared hot. It's an awesome podcast. It's got a pretty eclectic group. Actually, are you having a lot of fun doing this? Yes, I never uh, thought I was going to have a podcast, and then a good friend of mine recommended that I should, and he's relatively successful in that space. And I'm a believer that I've never had a unique idea in my entire life, so I followed the advice of people who are smarter or more successful than me, which he is probably both of those, and it's been fun. I get to sit down and talk with people, and I like the platform because, like you and I are having right now, we can work through an idea and have a conversation and even more importantly disagree at a at a socially acceptable level which i find just missing in the discourse on social media oh, yeah. absolutely and you know sometimes i worry if we're ever going to go back but at, at least there is a, so. <laughs> there, there's some semblance of that still remaining so i'm i'm at least thankful for that so i'm hopeful you, you, i don't know we'll yeah. see uh, you've spent a ton of time with us. You've shared a lot of lessons with us. I hugely, hugely appreciate it. And uh, I'll definitely make sure that we have a link to the Navy SEAL Foundation on our site as well. So anybody listening to this, definitely check that out and give time, money, whatever you can to, to that organization as well. So Andy, thanks a ton. Um, safe travels. I know I know you're off here very shortly. It's, it's been a blast and uh, hopefully we'll catch up with you soon. Sounds great. There he goes. Andy Stump, everybody. We are fortunate that we got to spend a little bit of time with Andy today. Getting to know his story a little bit better, I think, is incredible for everybody. There's so many great leadership lessons that we can put to work right away. If you have a chance, be sure to support the Navy SEAL Foundation, the, the group that he is actively involved in, and definitely get in touch with him on Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever it is, uh, Instagram for that matter. Let him know that you heard him on the show and you, you really loved the interview. Next week, we'll be back with some of our usual content. But in the meantime, I would love to hear what you thought of this. Get in touch with me on leadingbythebook.com, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Definitely want to hear how you're putting this to work in your own lives. So until next time, wishing you guys all a great week. We'll see you soon.